Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hallelujah is a phrase that is uh, literally means praise be to God. It's actually the shortening of Yahweh uh, because... The Hebrews weren't allowed to say God's full name in that sense, and so hallelujah means praise be to Yahweh, but hallelujah. And one of the amazing things about hallelujah is that it doesn't matter where you go in the world, there is no translation for that. If you're in India, if you're in Nepal, if you're in Africa, if you're in Australia, it doesn't matter, hallelujah is hallelujah. It means to praise our God. And one of the reasons we enjoy that is because we serve a God that is that is active. We serve a God that invites us in. We serve a God that is personal. We serve a God where we can actually say His full name and actually speaks to us. And this morning, uh, during our prayer gathering, Candace um, had a picture of a woman that was um, crushing grapes. And just the idea that crushing grapes is not something that um, necessarily seems like a positive thing. Certainly the idea of crushing doesn't. But however, if you don't crush grapes, you don't get grape juice. And uh, crushing grapes was a time where people rejoiced because they looked at the harvest that God gave them, but it was also a time where they looked forward to what that would represent. And, um, And I think some of us understand that God uses crushing in our lives, different circumstances to shape us. But we want that crushing to, to have its work immediately. And that grape juice doesn't become wine until time has passed. And so even this morning as we, as we sit here and we're thinking about the difficult times in our lives, maybe a crushing that God is working in us, And we're saying, yes, I know that God is present with me in persecution. I know that He's present with me in crushing. And now that this crushing is over, immediately I'm going to see the outcome of it. I want to pray for a patience for us to allow that fermentation of the Spirit, for that we will be patient knowing that the crushing of God will produce wine in years to come. God, I want to thank You for Your presence. I want to thank You that in the crushing you are present I want to thank you in the difficulties you are present and I want to thank you that you promised not a life of ease but a life of your presence and I want to pray for my brothers and sisters that are in times of crushing where they are feeling like circumstances people are crushing them God I want to pray that they would see what comes out of that and that you would give us the patience to rest in allowing your spirit to do work. And God, in the midst of our confusion about what's happening and our impatience, we do just want to say, praise be to God. We do just want to say, hallelujah. I don't know how you're going to work this out, but I know your character and I know your nature. And I know that because Jesus was crushed on our behalf. And we get to benefit of that now.
morning, Mercy Commons. My name is Jason. I'm one of the deacons here, and uh, it's a privilege to, to be with you and to be able to continue our series in the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, before we look at our passage today, I want you to, to try and think of a time in your life when you got special access to an important person or to an exclusive place, okay? Maybe you got an opportunity to meet one of your heroes or somebody famous, uh, or maybe you got VIP treatment or got to go behind the scenes at some place where most people never get to visit, okay? For me, um, something like this happened earlier this year uh, in May. It was a Tuesday. I was at work, and I checked my email. Up at the top of the inbox was an email that said, congratulations, you're on the guest list. So I opened it up, and it uh, turns out that I had won free tickets later that night to the Smashing Pumpkins album release party. Yeah. So I, uh, I had entered a contest the week before, one of these things that like you never win, and somehow I won. Um, so my name was on the guest list for this private concert out near LA. Now I realize like most of you, that would not be a big deal. Like Smashing Pumpkins are not exactly the it band, um, have not exactly had a hit in like 25 years. But for me, the Smashing Pumpkins are my favorite, one of my favorite bands of all time, okay? The Smashing Pumpkins are the reason why 12-year-old Jason decided to pick up his first guitar. I wanted to be, I wanted to be like Billy Corgan. So I took off work uh, early that day. I drove out to Burbank to this little venue that I'd never been to before. I get parked. I go to the check-in table. Sure enough, my name is on the guest list. And I get with a little wristband. I go through security. And I walk into a venue that is not much bigger than like this gym right here. Yeah. So I have, I have seen the Smashing Pumpkins in like big arenas filled with tens of thousands of people. I paid good money to sit like way far back from the stage. <laughs> and here this space holds maybe like two or three hundred people. Somehow I'm able to walk directly up to the stage, center stage, one person back from the front row. And for the next hour and a half, I have this view right here of the band, just melting my face off. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> the entire time, I'm just thinking, this is so surreal. Like, I can't believe that I'm here. And the concert, when it finally lets out, first thing I do, I text my brother, I text my friends, I put together the perfect Instagram post to document the whole thing. <laughs> I bask in the glow of, of this experience for the next few days. If you've ever had a special access moment like that, whatever came to your mind, you probably resonate with those feelings, right? There's this sense of awe and amazement that can come over us. There's this sense that I can't believe that this is happening to me, and I want to tell everybody about this. This morning, we're going to look at the fact that we have been given special access to God because of what Jesus has done for us. And one of my hopes is that we will recapture that sense of awe and amazement over the access that we have to God. It's not like the access that we have to a celebrity where we're in their proximity for a couple of hours and they might be like vaguely aware of our presence with them. No, because of Jesus, we have direct, personal, unending access to the God of the universe. The problem is if you're like me, it's so easy to take that access for granted. Um, it's so easy to think, like, of course, 
I have access to God. Of course I can pray to him whenever I feel like it. Of course I can ask him for forgiveness when I need it. But what we're going to see this morning in the book of Hebrews is that the access that we have to God should amaze us. The access that we have to God would have been unthinkable and unimaginable to the people who were living under the old covenant. And again, building on what we've been seeing for these past several weeks in Hebrews, we're going to see that what we experience through Jesus is so much better than what the old covenant had to offer. So this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 9, 1 through 14, and we're actually going to start with just the first 10 verses where the author of Hebrews describes what the limited access to God looked like under the old covenant. And what we're going to see is that access to God required three different things, okay? Number one, it required a special place. Number two, it required a specific priest. And number three, it required sacrificial purification, okay? A place, a priest, and purification. So let's read Hebrews 9, 1 through 10 together, and then we're going to explore the significance of of each of those areas. Starting in verse 1, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. That first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place of worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind the curtain was the second room called the most holy place. In that room were a gold incense altar and a wooden chest called the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered with gold on all sides. Inside the Ark were a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that sprouted leaves, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark was the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings stretched out over the Ark's cover, the place of atonement. But we cannot explain these things in detail now. When these things were all in place, the priests regularly entered the first room as they performed their religious duties. But only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented were still in use. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. For that old system deals only with food and drink and various cleansing ceremonies, physical regulations that were in effect only until a better system could be established. So this is what access to God looked like under the old covenant. And it began with a special place, the tabernacle. Now, if you've ever read um, one of those read-through-the-Bible-in-a-year reading plans, you might remember the tabernacle as the place that made you want to stop reading through the Bible in a year, okay? Because you start with Genesis, and you've got all the great stories about Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, and then you get into Exodus, and you've got the drama between Moses and Pharaoh, and you have the plagues and the, the Red Sea. And then you hit Exodus 25, and it all comes to a screeching halt. And for the next... 
Several chapters, you just get these detailed descriptions of this thing called the tabernacle and what was supposed to go on inside of it. And it's just chapter after chapter of measurements and materials and minutiae. And it's really kind of hard to understand and to visualize. And thankfully, we have artists today who can help us understand what this would have looked like. So I've got some renderings up here on the screen that I'll walk us through. So this is the tabernacle complex right here, and it started with a courtyard area. So there's these pillars that they set up and these white linen curtains that they would stretch between them to form this, this fence. It was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, so like about the quarter of a size of a football field. And inside this courtyard, you can go to the next slide, there was a bronze altar and on this altar, the, the people would offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. And then behind that bronze altar, uh, sorry, you can go back, there was a bronze basin that was filled with water. And this is where the priests would cleanse themselves of the blood after making these sacrifices to be able to go into the tabernacle. So if you look at the next slide, you can see this tabernacle rising behind the altar and the basin. The tabernacle was this tent structure that was 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, 45 feet long, and it was divided into two rooms. So when you first entered through that curtain into the first room, you can go to the next slide, you would enter into the holy place. And the holy place had three items inside of it. Off to the left, there was a solid gold lampstand. And uh, every day, the priests would come into the holy place, and they would refill the lampstand with pure olive oil. Uh, this was the only source of light inside the tabernacle, okay? Then off to the right, there was a table that was covered with gold, and it would house what was called the bread of the presence. So every Sabbath, the priests would come in, you can go to the next slide, and they would put 12 loaves of bread on top of this table, um, and they would eat the previous week's bread. So each week they would eat the previous week's bread, bring in fresh loaves of bread. And this symbolized God's desire to be in communion and fellowship with his people. Then at the rear of this room, closest to the next curtain and veil, was this thing called the altar of incense. And here, two times a day, in the morning and in the night, the priests would come in and they would light incense in an act of worship to God. And on certain occasions, they would bring this incense with them into the next room. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see the next room, once you entered into the, the, through the curtain, you would enter into the most holy place. And this is where they housed the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was this wooden chest that was covered with gold on all sides, and inside of it were some of the most important artifacts from the Exodus. So you had the stone tablets that God had given to Moses, you had the staff that belonged to Moses' brother Aaron, who was the first high priest, and then you had a golden jar that was filled with manna, which is what God used to feed his people while they were in the wilderness. And then on top of the ark, the lid is what was called the mercy seat. So it has these two figures there called cherubim that were stretching out their wings toward each other. In the center of that space, it was called the mercy seat. 
Uh, we sing about the mercy seat sometimes in songs. It wasn't a literal seat. It was more like it was the seat of mercy. It was the center of mercy. And that was where it was understood that God's presence dwelled in a special place, in a special way with them. So here in the most holy place is where the people understood that heaven and earth overlapped. Okay? This was the meeting place between heaven and earth. It's where God's space intersected with human space and where God allowed his glory to dwell. So that's element number one that was required for accessing the presence of God, a special place. The next thing that was needed was a specific priest. So when it came to the tabernacle, any Israelite could go into that courtyard area. They were all welcome to bring sacrifices and offerings into that space. But for the tabernacle itself, only the priests could enter into the holy place. It was off limits to everybody else. And then, as I mentioned, the priests, they would go into the tabernacle each day to perform these duties with the, the lampstand and the incense. But even the priests would have felt this sense of mystery and intimidation and even fear as they looked toward the rear of that space, to that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Because nobody was allowed to go into the most holy place except for the high priest. And even then, he could only go in one day out of the year on what was called the Day of Atonement. And that brings us to the third element that was required for accessing the presence of God. So there was the special place, the tabernacle, there was a specific high priest, and then there was a sacrificial purification ritual, which happened on the Day of Atonement. So on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would begin by washing and cleansing himself, and he would put on these sacred garments, and then he would sacrifice a bull on behalf of himself and on behalf of his family. And he would take some of the blood from this bull, and he would take some of the incense from the altar, and he would go into the most holy place. And he would dip his fingers into the blood, and he would sprinkle it onto the, seat of the, mercy, or onto the mercy seat seven times. And that would, in the process, purify him from his own sin. Then the high priest would go back out, and he would sacrifice a goat on behalf of the people. And he'd follow that same process. He would take some of the blood and some incense into the most holy place, and he would dip his fingers into that blood, and again, he would sprinkle seven times onto the mercy seat. And this would purify both the tabernacle and the people of Israel. Then he'd come out of the tabernacle, and he'd take some of the blood from the bull and from the goat, and he would sprinkle it onto the altar, and that would purify the altar. Then he would take a live goat, and he would take his hands, and he would put them on the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people over this goat. And in the process, Leviticus says that the sins of the people would be transferred onto this goat. This is where we get the term scapegoat. And they would take this goat, and a person would bring it into the wilderness and set it free. And it was a visual for the people of how God was taking their sins and removing their sins from them. And then finally, on the Day of Atonement, they would take the bull and the goat that they had sacrificed, they would carry them outside of the camp, and they would burn the bodies. And at the end of that whole ceremony, the people would be considered by God as cleansed from their sin. If you want to read all the details about it, you can read it in Leviticus 16. But here is how the end of Leviticus 16 summarizes what that day meant for them. On, the day, uh, on that day, offerings of purification will be made for you. 
and you will be purified in the Lord's presence from all your sins. The high priest will put on the holy linen garments and purify the most holy place, the tabernacle, the altar, the priests, and the entire congregation. This is a permanent law for you to purify the people of Israel from their sins, making them right with the Lord once each year. So there you have it, a special place where a specific priest offered sacrificial purification to temporarily cleanse the people from their sin. This is what it looked like for people to have access to God under the old covenant. And when you put all those pieces together, I think it helps us to see two things. First, on the one hand, we see the gravity of God's glory. And on the other hand, we see the severity of our sin. So the tabernacle speaks to the gravity of God's glory. It doesn't necessarily look all that impressive to us on the screen, but when you think about the millions and millions of dollars worth of gold that were in that space, when you think of how off-limits the most holy place was, when you think of how formal these rituals were, all of that communicates just how holy and how transcendent and how not to be taken lightly God is. It helps us to understand the gravity of his glory. And at the same time, it helps us to understand the severity of our sin. The reason why God had set up this sacrificial system is not because he's got this thirst for for blood. Um, There's nothing special about goat blood that makes God happy. Uh, The blood really wasn't for his benefit. It It was for the people's benefit. It gave them this visceral, visual reminder that sin is serious, Uh, that rebellion against God is a life and death issue. It's not meant to be taken lightly or be winked at. So watching the blood and the life drain out of an innocent, unblemished animal was a reminder to each of them that that my sin has consequences, that I am deserving of death. And all that to say the Old Covenant was a good thing for its time. Uh, The tabernacle and the temple that came after it were good things. They were God's way of dealing with sin and dwelling with his people and making a way for them to have a relationship with him. But they were temporary things. Um, They were shadows of a better thing to come. And that's where the author of Hebrews takes us next. So now that we've seen what access to God looked like under the old covenant, let's take a look at what access to God looks like through Jesus. And we'll pick up in Hebrews 9, 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So we saw how under the old covenant, uh, there was a requirement for a special place, a specific priest, sacrificial practice, uh, purification. What we're going to see now is how Jesus fulfilled each of those areas. So first, Jesus opens the way to the most holy place. Some of you may know that one of the first times we're introduced to Jesus in the New Testament, we're introduced to him as a tabernacle. 
Uh, in the Gospel of John, here's, Jesus is introduced this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Most of our Bibles say that he lived among us or he dwelt among us, but the word there is literally tabernacled. And so what we see right off the bat is that Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. So just like the tabernacle was the place that, caused, that God caused his presence to dwell, Jesus is now the place where God's presence dwells. He's God in the flesh. He's the human tabernacle. And as the Gospel of John goes on, Jesus refers to himself as the new temple. He speaks of a day when the old temple will be destroyed and, and the old covenant that went along with it. And in its place, he would be the temple, take its true place. And sure enough, at the moment that Jesus died on the cross in the scene that's so familiar to us, the, inside the temple, that curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place, the curtain was torn down the middle in two. Jesus had opened the way into the most holy place. And Jesus tells us that, or Hebrews tells us that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he ascended directly into the presence of the Father, into the true most holy place. The most holy place that was in the tabernacle and the temple were just a shadow and a copy of the real thing. And Jesus has now opened the way to the real thing. And not only that, but he has welcomed us into his presence there, into the presence of of God. Ephesians 2 says that right now we are seated with Christ in heaven. Right now, as you sit in your chair, you are seated with Christ in heaven, in the most holy place. Here's Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So in other words, because of Jesus, you are in the presence of God. And, and somehow the presence of God is also in you because the Bible also describes the church as the new temple of God. It says in Ephesians 2 that the church is a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. And not only is the church a temple, but you as an individual are now a temple. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Don't you know that you have the Holy Spirit from God and you don't belong to yourselves? You have been bought and paid for, so honor God with your body. I think we're familiar with that language of the church being a temple and us being a temple, but when we really think about it, when we, when we see what the tabernacle and the temple represented, that should fill us with a sense of, of awe. When we think about how glorious and how unapproachable and how intimidating the tabernacle was, it should make us realize what a big deal it is for us to be called temples of God, to realize that your body, that your soul is a place that God chooses to indwell. So that's element number one for accessing the presence of God. Jesus has made the tabernacle and the temple obsolete. He has gone into the true most holy place, and he has made it possible for God to dwell directly with us so that we can experience his presence wherever we go. Next, Jesus fulfills the requirement regarding the need for a specific priest. And Hebrews, as we've already seen, emphasizes over and over again that Jesus is the true high priest. 
Uh, he has made the other uh, high priests obsolete, and he has come as the eternal perfect high priest. Joel Baker preached a great sermon all about this a few weeks ago, so I won't repeat the whole thing here other than to just emphasize a couple of points that he made about why Jesus is so much better than the old high priests. First, the high priests under the old covenant were temporary. They would die and be replaced by new high priests. Jesus lives forever. He is our eternal high priest. Second, the high priests under the old covenant were sinful, just like everybody else. They needed to make sacrifices on their own behalf in order to access God's presence. Jesus had no sin. He is our perfect high priest. And because Jesus is our eternal, perfect high priest, we no longer need human high priests to stand between us and God. He's given us better access. There aren't levels of access like there were under the old covenant where the regular people could only go into the courtyard and only the priests could go into the the tabernacle. No, we all now have direct access to God through Jesus. And under the new covenant, with Jesus as our high priest, he has made us all into priests. So if you have put your your trust in Jesus, you are a priest. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You are being made into a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our eternal high priest who has given us access as his royal priesthood. We don't need to go through on anyone else to get to him. We all have direct access to God. So Jesus fulfilled the requirement about a place and a priest. And third, Jesus fulfills the requirement around sacrificial purification. As we saw, under the old covenant, the high priest would sprinkle blood from bulls and goats on the mercy seat each year in order to atone for sin. But Hebrews tells us that those sacrifices weren't good enough. They weren't sufficient in a couple of important ways. First, those sacrifices were temporary. They had to be repeated year after year. And second, those sacrifices could only cleanse people ceremonially. They had a symbolic purpose, but they couldn't cleanse the conscience. They couldn't truly purify people from the stain of sin. They couldn't deal with the root cause of of the brokenness and the rebellion inside the human heart. And so Jesus came and offered a better sacrifice. Instead of of the blood of animals, which could only symbolize the value of life and the consequences of sin, Hebrews says that Jesus offered his own blood on the mercy seat as a perfect, unblemished sacrifice for sin. Jesus, the God of the universe who tabernacled among us, offered up a life of ultimate worth in a way that truly dealt with the severity of our sin. And unlike the temporary sacrifices, Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. It's once and for all. Hebrews says that he has entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. No additional sacrifice is needed. And unlike the limited cleansing of the other sacrifices, which could only purify people externally, Jesus' sacrifice purifies us completely. Again, Hebrews says, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. Jesus' sacrifice purifies us completely from the inside out. He cleanses our consciences from the guilt that separates us from God. He removes our sin 
and makes us holy and welcomes us to dwell with him in the presence of God. So we've seen that Jesus has given us better access than the tabernacle. We've seen that Jesus is the better high priest. We've seen that Jesus has made ultimate purification for our sin. So how do we respond to that? What do we do with that information today? In the few minutes we've got left, I want to pull out just three quick takeaways for us. The first is to use the access that Jesus has given to us. If you remember my, my story back at the beginning about the concert, the crazy thing is that I almost didn't go. Um, it was such a last-minute thing, and I couldn't find anybody to go with me, and I felt a little weird about going to a concert alone. Thankfully, I had people tell me, no, you have to go. And thinking about that, it made me think of the fact that just because we have access doesn't mean that we use that access. And I think for many of us, we're not actually using our access to God to the level that he's inviting us to access him. So the question for you is, are you taking advantage of your access to God? Are you using it? Do you see it as the incredible gift that it is? How often are you opening your Bible to encounter him in the word? How often are you praying to him throughout the day to bring your cares and your concerns to him? How often are you coming to him in repentance and confession to seek his forgiveness and his grace? The thing about our access is that we don't need to go to a special place, and we don't need to go through a specific person, and we don't need to engage in specific practices. We can just come to him. We have direct access to the God of the universe. We can access him wherever and whenever we are, and that should fill us with a sense of awe and amazement. So maybe this morning is an opportunity for you to ask God to renew that sense of awe and amazement and to take advantage of that access that he's given to us. A second takeaway for us is to not treat our access casually. Uh, Looking at the the tabernacle and the temple, we saw just how intimidating and awe-inspiring that it was, how it represented the gravity of God's glory. It was clear to the people that God was holy and majestic and not to be taken lightly. And uh, I think that sometimes we are in danger of treating God too casually. I'm not talking about the way that we dress or the building that we we meet in. I know that some churches, you know, you have to wear your Sunday best and they've got elaborate buildings with the smells and the bells and the formal liturgies. Uh, I think there are actually good biblical reasons for why we do things the way that we do them here at Mercy Commons. I love the fact that we meet in a humble YMCA gym. Uh, I love the fact that our our gatherings feel more like a family get-together than a formal ceremony. I love that Nick doesn't have to wear, like, elaborate robes when he stands up here to preach. <laughs> so when I, when I talk about approaching God too casually, I'm talking more about the posture of our hearts. Um, do we have the proper reverence for him? Do we prepare our hearts to enter his presence? On a Sunday morning, for example, do you roll in here 15 minutes late, tired from the night before, Starbucks in hand, already preoccupied about what's going to happen after the service. I know I do that sometimes. Uh, I know I often don't take God as seriously as I should. Maybe that's true for you too. Maybe this morning is an opportunity to ask God to help you to develop a greater reverence for him. And then finally, and band, you can come up, uh, a third takeaway for us is to remember why 
we have been given access to God in the first place. The last verse of our passage today, Hebrews 9.14, says that the whole point of our access is to be able to worship the living God. The reason why he cleanses our consciences, the reason why he gives us access is so that we can serve and worship God as his priests, which is what we were designed and created to do. In fact, that's one of the big takeaways from the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, When we reach the final chapters, you know, a couple months from now, we're going to see that the author uses that same word for worship as part of his closing charge to the people. Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship, there's that word, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And just a few verses later, he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Mercy Commons, we have access to God so that we can worship God with reverence and awe, bringing him sacrifices not of bulls and goats, but bringing him sacrifices of praise. We are able to come before him with clean consciences and purified hearts to revel in his mercy and to proclaim his faithfulness. So that's what we're going to do now as the band leads us back into a time of worship. Father, we thank you for the access that you have given to us through Jesus. Thank you that we can come to you freely with clean consciences and purified hearts, that we can revel in your mercy, that we can proclaim your goodness. Thank you, Lord. One of the uh, privileges we have, and also one of the things that we were taught through Hebrews, is that every one of us has access to God. Later on in church history, it's called the priesthood of all believers. And uh, Sean, why don't you come up here and share what you shared with me at uh, pre-gathering prayer. So uh, we're coming up on the holidays, which means time off work, time with family and friends, time to let some of the typical stress fall away and enjoy the sweetness of the free time we work so hard for. I've started to get a glimpse of that as I started vacation for Thanksgiving, and a couple days in, I started realizing that all the things I'd intended to do when I had the time got pushed aside for momentary joy of entertainment. The word shared about the woman crushing the grapes with joy spoke to me of intentionality, the intentionality of using this time to prepare and invest in prayer, spending time with God and his word, and speaking truth of life into the people I love that I'll be sharing the harvest of my free time with. So we have a choice. We can try to enjoy all the sweetness of this time in the moment because like the grapes, this moment won't last. Or we can be an intent, intentional, investing for the future and enjoying and sharing the fruits of our efforts for years to come. So as we go to the table, thanks, Sean. As we go to the table of God's grace, the table of the new covenant, um, what I want to invite you to do is, if you're a follower of Jesus, to go back to the table, to grab the elements that symbolize his blood and his body, and then to come back to your seat and to respond as Jason has led us to respond.
So usually we stand uh, to take communion. I just want you to be seated because um, I just want you to process the things that Jason brought up as he preached the Word of God. One of the first things that he said was that we have this access and he said he needed to use that access and he needed to be encouraged to use that access. Um, and as you... As you sit and as you look at those elements, the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus, that gives you full access into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where you can find mercy and grace in your time of need. I want you to ask this question of your own soul. Am I using the access that God has given me? Am I using that in terms of the intentionality that Sean talked of? Am I using that in terms of setting time aside? Or am I using that of actually knowing that in any moment I can say, Jesus, help me? Am I using that access? The second thing that Jason invited us to understand was this, the sense of being too casual with the fact that we have access. We have access to a holy God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. Do we understand what that means? And then thirdly, the purpose of that access. Jason isn't buddies with the smashing, smashing pumpkins dude, whoever that is. He isn't. He went to a concert, he came back. We have access to God and deep, intimate fellowship with Him. We don't leave on this memory of how amazing that was, we have this access because He wants intimate relationship with us. And that's what He offers us continually. So we don't have to live off that one moment. We don't have to live off that Instagram post. We don't have to live off that, that essential kind of high mountain moment. We have it every day. And so as, as John just plays, I want you to think, God, am I using that access? Do I really understand the power of it? Am I, am I too casual with it? And then do I understand that the reason you're calling me to be intentional, the reason that you're calling me to understand this access is because you want to be with me. You made a way to be with me. Just spend some 15, 20 seconds just thinking about that. Father, as I come before you, I pray for my friends. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would just breathe fresh hope, fresh desire, that the idea that we have access is not something that we know and we recognize and we're grateful for, but it, it is something we use. I want to pray, Father God, that we would marry this idea of friendship with God, but a holy God. That we would know that you are the one that reached out to us when the curtain was torn. You came out to us. You ran out to us. And God, I pray 
that we would understand that you did that not just for a legal transaction, but you did that so that you could be with us and we could be with you. Won't you stand with me, please? This represents the body of a holy God broken for our wholeness. Take and eat. This represents not the blood of bulls and goats. This represents the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins to give us full access to God and deep relationship with a holy God. Take and drink. Tony came to me before and felt like maybe there are, uh, Scripture says that God prepares a table for us in the midst of our enemies. And that table is represented by His blood and His body broken for us. I think sometimes we tend to focus on our enemies rather than the fact that God has prepared a table for us. So Tony is going to pray for people that have connected with that. And then Jeannie just also shared with me that sometimes it isn't just the old tried and true uh, kind of worship rituals that have lost their meaning. Sometimes we need to repent of what we do to make ourselves feel like God um, should accept us. And so Tony and Jeannie are going to be on my left to your right to help those that are uh, wanting to receive prayer. Why don't you guys go ahead and move over there. For the rest of us, I want to thank you for your attentiveness to the scriptures to the voice of God. I want to pray that you would have a great week celebrating with family. Um, and I pray that we would see the voice of God be spoken in our family gatherings through gratitude. Don't get involved in... Just don't... This is my advice. Don't go there, right? When you're sitting with your family and you're doing that, just say, God, I want, to be great. I, want to be, I want to be grateful. I want to be kind. I want my light to shine from you. Go out there and be the church. Enjoy Thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.